What's up, people? Jose Nino is back in the house giving you another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I am joined with Conservatism Inc.'s worst nightmare, that is the great and irrepressible Vincent James. He is the founder of the former Red Elephant's YouTube channel and is currently a writer and the podcast host at the Daily Veracity. What's new with you, Vincent? Oh, uh, you know, out here in Idaho now, left California, finally. Good to hear. Been wanting to do that for a while. California, as probably everyone knows, is going downhill and quick. Although I will note that like I lived in Orange County, so it wasn't like too bad there. But yeah, you know, I mainly left as millions are today for political reasons, which, as I've talked about on my show, is pretty unprecedented. People don't typically have their top reasons for moving be political, but it seems to be the case today in America, which is interesting. Yes, there are a lot of like very uncomfortable explanations for why people are moving that some of the gatekeepers on the acceptable right will not acknowledge as well. And yeah, there's a ton of political and also demographic issues that we will obviously touch upon later in the show because this is stuff that people these days tend to ignore. But it's very important because to actually be politically effective, we need to start talking about root causes and also identifying the enemy properly. Agreed. So, yeah, I've uh, followed you more or less for like the past five to six years when you were formerly on YouTube. And your views are definitely on the nationalist spectrum. What originally got you into politics? What originally got me into politics? I'm just like most people today, right? Uh, Donald Trump running for office got me interested in politics. I was always, I was always sort of like aware of politics. I guess maybe not always, but I wasn't hyper interested in politics when I was a kid as, you know, as most young people, I think most young people could probably say the same thing. They weren't really interested in politics when they were young. But, you know, my mom would always tell me about, oh, look, Barack Obama's doing this now and Barack Obama's doing that now and, huh. you know, stuff like this. So I started paying attention to it. My mom actually got me involved in, uh, in politics, which is pretty interesting. Typically, I think it's private dad or I don't even know, honestly. I guess people would have to be pulled. But got interested in politics because of my mom. And then I got really interested in politics. And that was during the Barack Obama administration. Then I got really interested in politics when Donald Trump came along. So, you know, a lot of people have a lot of criticism for Trump, including myself, you know, with the vaccine stuff and personnel decisions during his administration and things <laughs> like that. But yes, one thing that people can say about Trump is... You know, he served his purpose as at creating a, a revolution, right? Creating or starting a revolution, getting so many people interested in politics. Like a lot of us wouldn't be here. A lot of these movements wouldn't be here. And a lot of people wouldn't be running and winning office right now if it were not for Trump. So, yeah, my political origin story was also pretty weird because I got into it mostly through Ron Paul, Pat Buchanan. And it's right. actually funny, like it was like through a sports forum where there was this guy like online that would just always post these like Ron Paul and Pat Buchanan videos. And I just like watched those videos and just 
fell down that rabbit hole. But I do see like Trump as an expression and continuation of that type of anti-establishment spirit that has been lying dormant in the American populace since like the end of the Cold War. And despite like Trump's flaws and all that, I still think that him running in 2015 on like a really, really explicitly immigration patriot platform is really good because it's now put the issue at the fore of like political discussion. Yeah, I agree. Now, one of the major themes I've picked up on your work is not just like about like exposing the left or owning the libs. Like you see a lot of your so-called respectable conservatives do, but also exposing a lot of con ink, if you will. In what ways are conservatives these days subverting like America first principles? Well, I mean, they've been doing this for a long time, right? I think conservative ink, and for those who don't know what conservative ink is, right? Conservative ink is like the mainstream conservatives out there. So, you know, we think of like the Daily Wire, we think of Breitbart News, <laughs> we think of the Blaze, we think of these sorts of publications and these sorts of people, Mad Walsh, Ben Shapiro, these sorts of people are people we would describe as being in Conservative Inc., Conservative Incorporated, which is what Conservative Inc. is short for. And they've been subverting the America First movement for decades now. I mean, going back to Pat Buchanan and really even before him, a lot of the yep. neoconservatives started to infiltrate which were liberals, right, calling themselves conservatives, they started to infiltrate a lot of these different groups. And this is what we know today as Conservative Inc. And I'm not saying that today's Conservative Inc. are mainly made up of liberals, but they're certainly mainly made up of neoconservatives and conservatives that are really trying to hide away the real important issues and the real important things that are causing these issues in the country today you know, for a long time, actually before Donald Trump, right? Immigration was like a topic that was off the table. That was, that was something you couldn't talk about before Donald Trump. And now Donald Trump has sort of normalized this conversation, but, you know, conservative Inc. tried to tuck that away for a long time. In fact, a lot of conservative Inc. really pushed for mass immigration because, you know, the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute and all these like libertarian think tanks said that immigration was good. It's good for the GDP. It's good for, for our economy. And, and it's good, of course, for their donors who want mass immigration because their donors are in these corporations who mainly benefit from mass immigration. And so for a long time before Trump, you know, that was a topic you could not touch with a 10-foot pole. And Trump has sort of normalized this conversation a bit more. Like I said, a lot of people have a lot of criticism for Trump, but if there's one thing he did, he made a lot of people political, a lot of people interested in politics. He got a lot of people to run for office and win. And he also started to know he he himself normalized the conversation of of immigration once again. I mean, you can go back to Pat Buchanan. These things have been happening for a while. So they conservative Inc. is in charge because they're propped up to the top of the conservative sphere because they want to control the conversation. They are owned by a lot and they're bought and paid for by a lot of the same groups, a lot of the same alliances, a lot of the same organizations that the left is. And they want to make sure the conversation doesn't go down a certain road that they would describe as dangerous when really it's actually the only route to being effective 
to effectively opposing what's happening to the country. They want to keep people sort of like lulled to sleep and focusing on socialism and communism and, you know, things like this when there are much bigger issues causing much bigger problems. Oh, I absolutely agree with that because, yeah, these people are tone deaf on issues that actually matter. They would rather talk about like tax cuts, socialism, Israel, what's the next country we're going to invade, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, what do you think are actually like the biggest threats to America in terms of public policy that these guys don't talk about? Well, um, you know, one thing that they are starting to talk about now more is like vaccine mandates and, you know, the COVID tyranny that's happening right now, whereas before they all were in support of it. They all bought into it hook, line and sinker, right? I mean, if you look at a lot of the, and I talk about this on my show, if you look at a lot of the restrictions that were put into place during the whole onset of the quote-unquote pandemic, a lot of those restrictions, most, in fact, all of those restrictions were put in place by the states. And guess what? Over half of the country, over half of the states are controlled by conservative, Republican, so-called conservative, state legislatures and governors. Super majority in a lot of cases. Yeah. And so they were in support of it initially until they started to see which way the wind was blowing with their constituents. And now all of a sudden they're all against it. And so that's a probably the biggest issue at hand right now, vaccine mandates and their move for the digital, universal digital IDs and one world CBDCs and the great reset and what's happening with the country right now in terms of inflation. Like to me, that's probably the top issue that I've been focused on in my show. And then second to that, I would say, you know, probably you can put up there social media censorship. You know, you go back to 2018, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, was sponsored by Google, was sponsored by Facebook in 2017, rather. Social media censorship, which they've done nothing on. You can also put up their immigration, mass immigration, which is a topic, like I said, was uh, untouchable until President Trump, which he normalized the conversation around that mass immigration, uh, crime, Black Lives Matter, things like this, like, and what Black Lives Matter led to, which is this record crime rate that we're seeing. Like, these are the things that that I think are important to most people. And then obviously, you know, what's going on in schools? You know, this is something else that conservatives aren't doing anything about. What's going on in schools? What's going on in the content that our children are consuming at home, whether it be pornography, which they seem to have free access to with the click of a button. These are things that conservative state legislatures in in, in Republican-controlled states can very easily take care of, but they haven't. They haven't. And so what happened in 2020 election with President Trump and the voter fraud and the mass ballot harvesting and all that stuff that was happening, you know, and then all the other stuff that I just talked about, it sort of built up in the minds of real middle American radicals And they figured like, hey, our representatives are not representing us. So let's go to Washington, D.C. with our grievances. And that's what they did. And I think that there's this feeling among the middle American radicals, as Samuel Francis put in his book, The Revolution from the Middle. I think that there's this feeling among these middle American 
people that, you know, still, and which, which has not been addressed. And, it, you know, it's only going to get worse from here. Yeah, San Francisco is one figure that I cannot stress enough is one of the most prescient voices when it comes to predicting like the total mess that we're seeing right now with regards to multiculturalism, societal decay, and demographic shift. Rest in peace because he was one of the best commentators that Con Inc. canceled. And we owe a lot of people in this movement owe a lot of gratitude to Francis because he helped coin concepts such as anarcho-tyranny and other ideas that are now gaining a lot of currency in conservative circles. Now, you mentioned big tech because I think this is a very important issue, especially in your case, because you go off on a host of issues from immigration, sexual degeneracy, and even aspects of American foreign policy, specifically the Zionist influence on it that have made you a major target for the big tech censors. How strong have the censorship campaigns against you been? Well, I mean, they've been pretty strong because I've been banned from basically everything. So, <laughs> I mean, I guess that's a pretty good judge of how strong they've been, how, how strongly how, how strongly effective they've been. I've been banned from everything. I've been banned from every payment processor. I've been banned from... Cash App and PayPal and Venmo. My wife was banned from those apps as well. I've been banned Whoa. from Airbnb and Uber Eats and Uber. I've been banned from YouTube, obviously. I had a massive channel over there. I've been banned from Facebook. I had a huge page over there during the Trump run for election in 2016. Something like 400,000 followers on the Facebook page. 28 million views to the page every single week. Organic views. I've been banned from... Twitter, I don't know how many times I've been banned from TikTok. I've been banned. I, I've been banned from everything, from pretty much everything out there. So now I'm sort of constricted to these more esoteric platforms that have come along that are, you know, somewhat free speech, pro-free speech platforms like BitChute and Rumble and Odyssey and and Gab and Gab TV and Telegram and stuff like that. So, but still reaching a lot of people. So still out there. Yeah, there is a budding alt tech infrastructure that I think has a promising future because a lot of people are tuning out of the bland discourse that you find on the typical social media. And I, I hope that ecosystem continues growing. Hopefully, we get legislation in as well to slap some of these big tech companies around because what they're doing is total BS. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, I think that we probably would be better off and we've sort of been forced, our hand has sort of been forced in this way, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of been forced into the position where we have to create what Andrew Torba likes to call a parallel digital society, right? A parallel society in that we have to create. I know it's, it was like a meme back in like 2017, 2018. Oh, just create your own. Just build your own. Yeah, of course we're going to do that. And But we have. And a lot of people have. I mean, you look at Andrew Torba, what he did with Gab. You look at what Nick Fuentes has done with Cozy.TV. You look at what Ray has done over there at BitChute. You look at these different things and you see that we have built our own. And so this is the route that we're probably going to have to take. It doesn't seem likely that conservatives are going to, outside of you know the potential legislation passed in individual states, 
which still hasn't really come or been functional. It doesn't really seem like we're going to be addressing this on a national level. I don't, I don't see a future where we're going to be allowed back onto these platforms in mass because of legislation. Now, with that said, I mean, there are countries, foreign countries, that can fine these tech companies for not taking down what they consider to be hate speech. They find American companies for not taking down things. States can very easily push legislation that would do the same thing in the reverse, but they haven't really done that. There's been talk of it, hasn't really been successful. There's been attempts, but not really attempts. So I don't see that sort of thing happening in the future. I think our best option is creating a parallel digital society for us to reside on. Yeah, I think you you have a point there because I've um, worked in the GOP for some time. Well, mostly like as a Second Amendment lobbyist for this one no compromise organization. And in general, it's a pain in the rear to deal with these people because a lot of these guys just prefer maintaining the status quo. They talk a big game about doing stuff, but they end up doing nothing. And at times, actually, when you peel back the onion and look at all the wheeling and dealing that they do behind the scenes, they actually work with the left to like craft a lot of legislation, at least like leftist light legislation to continue the leftward lurch towards totalitarianism. So there is like some truth to the fact that there is an audience out there that's willing to support alt tech. So you want to have that base covered because frankly, the current constellation within the GOP, when it comes to the people that are elected, frankly, just sucks. But I do still see the GOP as a viable vehicle here and there for nationalist activism, because most importantly, they have the constituencies that is receptive to our message. What would you say is the most effective way for people to get more politically involved inside the GOP or just any other type of organization that's at least like right-leaning? Yeah, I would say, you know, something I say on my show a lot is, you know, you can run for or you can support people running for certain local positions. You can join your local GOP groups, of which there are many in every place across the country, aside from like the super small, you know, like towns with not too much of a population. But in basically every other place, like I know here in North Idaho, there are like six or seven different conservative groups. So you can join these conservative groups. You can change them from within. That's political action that I think is highly effective. Push for people to run, take over the groups yourself. You can run for political office, you know, at the precinct committee men level and then you know start from there i believe that using the power of the existing state is the way forward still considering the fact that a lot of the constituency who votes for these people are becoming more and more radical by the day and i think that this is a good thing and i think that you know you seeing certain videos online of them mobbing and hounding people like mitt romney and, and lindsey graham and booing people like Dan Crenshaw and and booing people like Ted Cruz for calling the people on January 6th terrorists, this is a good sign. This is a good sign, and it shows that the people are beginning to realize what the situation really is and start to realize who Conservative Inc. really is. And so as long as you have that pressure coming from the constituency and as long as you have people 
who are actively involved in politics and interested in politics because of President Trump, who got them interested in those things, and maybe might run again in 2024, which would only ramp this up. I think that there is, in fact, a political solution. And actually, every solution is a political solution. You know, there's a lot of talk about secession happening all across the country as well. That's a political solution that uh, is is pretty viable going forward. And I think that we need to amass our, our power in a decentralized manner, not in a nationally organized manner, because the regime will just take you out quickly, but a, a, in a decentralized manner until it comes time to unify in the end. You know what's funny about secession? I wrote a piece on Substack where I put out like a hypothetical scenario of having like the inner Northwest, like say like Idaho, Montana, and parts of like Eastern Washington and Oregon latch with what's it called? Alberta and Canada, which tends to be much more conservative leaning compared to the rest of Canada, which actually really isn't saying much, but there is like an independence movement there to kind of create this kind of statelet on the North American continent that's at least like conservative. And I think that obviously it was more of like a hypothetical thing, but there is a growing nullification movement, I think, and people are becoming much more local in their politics as well. And I encourage a lot of people to get much more involved in those spaces because I think there's a lot more progress to be made there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, you have, like I said, just like when you look at the people moving for political reasons, moving and saying that politics basically is their top reason for moving. And then you have places like Oroville, California, declaring themselves a constitutional republic and the Greater Idaho Project, which is ramping up and what happened in Buckhead, Georgia recently. And, you know, the talk of certain Virginian counties seceding into West Virginia. Things are happening. And I think that this is a good sign for us. This is a good thing for us. Really, any way to amass power in a decentralized way while the the system basically completely collapses opens up a, a, a power source for us and an outlet for us to be able to get a handle on on these things. Yeah, that stuff is like definitely constitutes like a soft secessionism of of, of sorts. And I'd even go f- even further that you kind of saw its genesis after the civil rights revolution with the white flight, essentially. And then like now it's becoming like much more like broad based where you're seeing like for like very political reasons, people moving because even I've noticed, too, in Texas, where even like Hispanic Californians are moving to Texas as well, because just how bad it's gotten in California and even like Asian Californians, too. So there is like a broad based like political movement going down. Now, this leads me to another point. You've been involved politically since like Trump started running. What would you say are the biggest differences between like Trump, like the energy and Trump's initial run and now? Well, I think his energy and what he brought to the table has sort of died down. And honestly, and you know, a lot of people are would say that this is a cope, but really it's true. I mean, when you look at his initial personnel decisions, this is really responsible for a lot of the failures of the Trump presidency. 
right? You look at people that he's appointed, which set him back, like Mike Pompeo or people like John Bolton, obviously. Instead of instead of appointing people like Douglas McGregor, he appointed Douglas McGregor after great the guy. election. After, yeah, a great guy. I mean, true nationalist. has been on Tucker Carlson a variety of times. Tucker Carlson called for him to be appointed in the Trump administration forever on his show, implicitly. Never happened. People like Jared Kushner being involved, Christopher Ray, like not getting rid of him, not getting rid of Gina Haspel until... You know, the very end, you know, like, these are things that really set him back. And these are things that led to the now sort of castrated Donald Trump that we see today, where he doesn't have the same sort of emotion. He doesn't have the same sort of energy. He's not talking about the same things. Now it's sort of starting to ramp up again because it seems to be the case that he's probably going to run in 2024. Now, with that said, there is some things that point to potentially it being the case that Trump is going to be the Trump of 2015 if he does win again. And those things are, you know, you see certain fleeting stories here and there about how Stephen Miller had a whole drawer full of proposed executive action on on all these different things. And he was going to open up this drawer toward the end of Trump's presidency. We saw him bring in Douglas McGregor after the election. So he knows, he gets it. He knows what he has to do. We've seen a variety of other things that point to this potentially being the case as well. So we'll see what happens. I mean, Trump is the way. I mean, you're not going to get another Trump. Trump is a once-in-a-lifetime guy. DeSantis is not him. DeSantis is very boring. He's not funny. He doesn't have the same sort of things. You know, he's not able to generate enthusiasm in a crowd. He DeSantis would not be able to turn out 500,000 people to the to the nation's capital you know, with a tweet, you know, so Trump is the way Trump started this revolution. And so now we have to sort of pick up the reins and as a movement, which they fear more than Trump himself and continue this revolution down, down the road. They're trying to take us out though, as you can see with the January 6th committee and the investigations and the arrests and stuff like this. So they're trying to come after us hard. We just have to stand strong and, and, and continue. The point you raised about DeSantis is pretty apt because I've argued that he's actually much more effective at the state level because he's kind of kicked off a somewhat of like a decentralist revolution that has created a schism between like the COVID insanity states and the ones that are much more free. But if he goes to the federal level, I actually think he'd just be like a typical neocon or neocon adjacent type guy because if you look at his donor base and also look at a lot of the pundits who have been pushing for the DeSantis run, like even like Bill Crystal had positive things to say about him. I think there is like a good assumption to be made that he's actually like pretty co-optable, if you will. So I'd rather him just stay as governor of Florida and give um, the middle finger to the COVID idiots. But I don't think he is like Trump 2.0 or Trumpism after Trump, like some people do. Yeah, I agree. I don't think he is either. I, I think he's very, he's probably the best governor. Oh, yeah. Republican governor out there, for sure. But yeah, he's definitely not Trumpism after Trump. That's that's 100% true. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Now, going to controversial issues. I think like at this point, anyone that has like 
like an IQ above room temperature and a functioning pair of eyes recognizes that there is like a clear anti-white hate campaign being launched by every institution and their dog, whether it's like the administrative state, mega corporations, civil society, such as churches. You do a ton of research on this. Who are the principal actors pushing this anti-white agenda based on what content you've covered? Yeah, I mean, there's, it's pretty broad, right? So you have like a lot of like black activists, right? You have a lot of these people like an Ibram, Ibram X. Kendi. You have uh, a lot of white liberals out there who push this stuff a lot. And then you have a lot of like secular Jews who push the anti-white agenda. And I think that they're probably the most prevalent from what I've seen and, you know, you can call this whatever anti-Semitic or whatever, yeah. but it's just the truth. I view <laughs> anti-Semitic. I view the word anti-Semitic as a as a tool to shut down people being opposed to certain things. Just as I view, you know, it's the same way that they use the word racist and neo-Nazi and white supremacist and insurrectionist and these sorts of terms. I view anti-Semitism that word in the same way, right? It's a way to to shut down or to counter those opposed to what you're trying to do. And it's just, the, it's just the reality, right? It's just the reality of, of what's happening. It's just the reality of, of what's happening in Hollywood and what's happening in the media and what's happening in the, and the news outlets across the country. And, you know, they're, uh, they're pushing this while white people are still 62% of the population. Imagine what's going to happen when whites are 30% of the population, right? Imagine what that's <sighs> going to look like if this is happening now. Yeah. So, you know, one of the reasons why, and then you have, you know, Tucker Carlson, who's been talking about, you know, this is the way, this is the way that the rhetoric is going, which is only good for us. You have Tucker Carlson in front of 5 million people talking about a white replacement migration, which is true. And, you know, the reason why they want whites to become a minority in the country, the reason why they try to represent this as a good thing, although when you ask them, what are the positives of this, they can't come up with anything besides food and music. But, they want whites to become the minority in the country because number one, for political reasons, political control. But number two, it's about control more broadly because whites are harder to control, right? Non-white people typically, not all, but most are used to being lorded over, are, are fine with the sort of low grade quality of living uh, in these certain neighborhoods. And so they view this as, in a general sense, as a way to obtain more control. And money is a big part of it, of course, as well, right? Yeah, big time. Yeah, cheap labor and cheap votes. Right. And yeah, to go back to your point about noticing patterns, I've like long argued that pattern recognition and just like uncomfortable trend recognition, moreover, are crimes in clown world USA. Like just noticing patterns will get you in a lot of heat. But that's how the cookie crumbles in this totally bizarre world political environment we live in. True. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now, now we've definitely opened up a Pandora's box here because unlike your normie conservative commentator, you talk a lot about Israel and how its relationship with the U.S. is not exactly what I would call optimal. This is something I actually agree with, by the way, because I tend to believe the U.S. needs to really reconsider and recalibrate its relationship with Israel's. In what ways is the U.S.'s relationship with Israel detrimental to American interests? 
Well, I mean, I think that it's it's very one-sided, right? I mean, we're we're sending billions of dollars there a year. And then some people will argue, well, we send billions of dollars to Egypt as well. Well, but the thing is, is we send billions of dollars to Egypt to keep the peace with Israel. So effectively, it's money to Israel as well. So we're sending three to five billion dollars there a year. We're sending them all of our military equipment. We've sent them two trillion dollars in both military aid and foreign aid since 2002. And there really is no reciprocal. There's no return on investment there. We've gotten into many wars in the Middle East because of the Israel lobby in Washington, D.C., APAC, which even Congress has argued that it's the most powerful lobby in Washington, D.C. We've been pushed into many wars in the Middle East where the only beneficiary of these wars, the only place that benefited from these wars, the only country that benefited was the state of Israel because we took out all of the different countries. We destabilized all of the different countries and all of the different governments that that were hostile to them with Iran being on the table next, right? We saw John Bolton under the Trump administration speak in front of APAC or some Israel-connected group and say that we are going to celebrate in Tehran. We are going to take down Iran. This was one of the countries that's been on the list for a long time, right? Libya, uh, you look at Syria was another one. They were trying to push Trump into into destabilizing. Well, Syria is pretty much destabilized already. They've been doing this for a while, but taking out uh, Bashar al-Assad, talking about all these chemical attacks that were happening. And so this is what we get in return. And we also get in return spying more aggressively than any other foreign country in the world, even more than China. Trump, in return, got unfollowed by Bibi Netanyahu once the election, right after election day. Uh, He also got (laughs) spy devices planted all around Washington, D.C., Israeli spy devices, which was covered in a Politico article. So, you know, there is no reciprocal. In fact, the only thing that we get in return is more aggression, more hostility. But the reason why we're told to support Israel as conservatives is because every conservative media outlet is controlled by Jewish Americans who support Israel, right? From Blaze TV to Breitbart News. I think they wrote an article once. Breitbart said that they were conceived in Israel, which they were. You know, you see all these rebel news, you know, all these different media outlets are controlled by Jewish Americans whose interest in Israel is put above their interest in the United States of America. And so we've been sort of tricked in this way to support this country and also tricked in this way to support this country with the power of the word anti-Semitic or anti-Jew, you know, these sorts of words, that that if you oppose Zionism, if you oppose the money being sent to Israel or the, or the foreign aid and, and the military aid being sent to Israel, if you oppose these wars, then you are anti-Semitic. So a lot of people are sort of hush on the matter. It's actually pretty farcical when you see a lot of China hawks out here not recognizing how closely linked Israel and China are and how like literally Israel steals American military tech and sells it to China. And as like China gets more powerful, I actually think that Israel's just like machinations and overall malfeasances are going to get even more intense as China becomes more relevant in the, and it's going to like turn coat the U.S. even harder. Because actually I see like what happened with Trump and BB Netanyahu as kind of like a microcosm of like the parasitic relationship that Israel has had 
with the U.S. for a while. And I personally think that the U.S. should like really stop giving it aid and just treat it like a normal country. And also, broadly speaking, like limit immigrations from a bunch of other countries, too, as well, because that's how a lot of these foreign interests ultimately subvert the U.S., because once when you basically open up your country to everyone, you allow for fifth columns to like set up and subvert you from within. Yeah. And also, you know, the fact that we can very easily without any sort of like fear in our minds, talk about the infiltration of the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese into America and how they control the American government to some extent the fact that we can talk about that without any fear just goes to show you how how propagandized we have become when it comes to a country like Israel, right? I mean, like you said, they spied on us more aggressively than any other foreign adversary for a, a lot of history, for many decades, for many, many, many years. They have stolen our technology, stolen our nuclear technology. They've sold those that technology that they have stolen from the U.S. to China. And then you look at when you're talking about it from an immigration perspective, a lot of the immigration from, you know, the early 1900s coming from Europe, and you had a lot of like European Jews immigrate here. I sort of sympathize with a lot of the Americans who had laws in place preventing, literally preventing European Jews specifically from immigrating here to this country because there was a fear of communism. I sort of sympathize with that because you look at a lot of American Jews today, like Sheldon Adelson, you know, who was born in in Texas and uh, or Massachusetts. I might be getting these two confused. You also look at someone like what was that guy's name that spied and then fled to Israel and recently was granted citizenship in Israel. Oh, Jonathan Pollard. Jonathan Pollard, right? Who was in, who was born in either Texas or Massachusetts? I get those two confused. You look at these American Jews, and it seems to be the case that they care more about Israel than America. And so this is like one of the biggest issues with immigration, whether it be Chinese or maybe not Mexican, because I don't think we're ever going to go to war with Mexico or or something like that. But like Chinese immigration, Jewish immigration from the European Jews from the early 1900s, like and after World War II, like uh, this is an issue, right? You have this issue of dual citizenship. You have this issue of dual loyalty. And we can only talk about the Chinese one, though. That's because because there's no there's no word that's become powerful to to uh, smack you down if you've talked about the or 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 there's no genocide you know that's become slammed into our brains in history books and and Hollywood movies that prevents us or make us makes us fearful of talking about Chinese infiltration. So you can only talk if you're conservative and conservative Inc. especially, you can only talk about Chinese. You can't talk about Jews in that way. But it's a real issue and it has been an issue for a long time. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny when you think about it, regardless of where you stand on the Israel-Palestine thing, like you can like legit be canceled for talking too much about the plight of the Palestinians. And I've seen actually some leftist groups get censored for that on social media. It's like one of the very rare occasions you'll see groups on the left get deplatformed, but you can talk about the Uyghurs all you want. And what's actually hilarious, some people don't realize this, Israel hasn't been that gung-ho about the Uyghur issue as well, but like US, like they're uh, just going nuts about it. And I've long argued with some people that 
actually, if you look at the opening up of the Chinese economy to U.S. and all that, and like all the policies that enabled China to like to flood us with a lot of these cheap goods and stuff like that, was largely promoted by secular Jews, especially those of like really strong financial backgrounds and all of that. So like really a lot of this stuff is enabled by a population that does like feel like alienated from the rest of its like core host country, if you will. So that's a discussion that should be had, like how there is like a clear trend of secular Jews having a disproportionate impact on public policy in the U.S. People can have their interpretations, but we should at least like have a debate on it if we actually believe in free speech. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. You look at the Belt and Road Initiative, you look at all this stuff, and uh, it's been there for a while. It's been there for a while. Just not a lot of talk about it, but you should be able to. Yeah. Going back to the immigration question, because it's obviously like, for me at least, like the key like civilizational issue of our time. And it's like, it has like a ton of implications. You could go down the line, whether it's like the oligarchical interest groups that want to continue bringing in millions of legal migrants as a form of cheap labor to the ethnic hustlers that on explicit terms, want to just basically demographically transform the U.S. because they can't stand white countries. It's a doozy of an issue. Now, why do you think the right should take this immigration question more seriously? And what is like the solution to it at the end of the day? Well, uh, the solution would be a moratorium for at least 10, 20 years, right? We've always had immigration ebb and flow. We've always had, you know, starts and stops. And uh, I think that that's certainly in order, especially just to give people time to assimilate into this ever diversifying country with soon no culture to assimilate to, no one main culture to, no one dominant culture to assimilate into. That would be the solution. The reason why Republicans should be focused on this is because number one, the country is going to turn to absolute shit. You know, Donald Trump, got a lot of flack for calling a country like Haiti a shithole. But it is. But it is. And when America becomes minority white, it's going to look like the minority white cities in America and the minority white towns in America and the other minority white countries in the world. And so the culture is going to be completely destroyed. And this is something that's irreversible, unlike ideological shifts which are reversible and have been reversible throughout history. So it's something that's irreversible. And also, you know, if they really care about staying in office, well, I guess I suppose a lot of these people would just run in as Democrats anyway. But if they really cared about staying in office, they would care about this issue, right? Because we see the way that certain groups vote. And if there's just a constant flow of people, you don't have really a window for these people to assimilate to maybe change their political beliefs a few generations later or assimilate a few generations later. They might, but how would that be possible if there's a constant flow of people and a growing, a consistent growing of different neighborhoods and towns throughout the country where Spanish is the first language or Chinese is their first language? Why would they need to assimilate if their entire city speaks the same language as they do? So on the most basic form of assimilation, language is going away. 
And pretty soon, we're just going to have a hodgepodge of 28 different countries within one country. And uh, that's not very good. So conservatives should care about this. Trump won because he talked about this. And the constituents, their constituents care about this. Yeah, the immigration question is pretty multifaceted. In fact, I'd argue, too, that one thing with regards that I fear, if things like in Mexico just get continue to get worse, I fear that the drug war is just going to move up north. And you're going to see cartels just carve out the U.S. like a, They're already kind of doing that already, to be honest. And just carve out the U.S. like a jack-lantern. And with all these like defund the police movements and whatnot, a vacuum is going to be filled. And a lot of these organizations will absolutely start embedding their own people there. And you're going to start seeing a lot of like ethnic gangs, cartels, and other criminal elements start to just like take over cities and just go ham on the historic American nation. Like, And at the end of the day, U.S. will just then be like a hollowed out husk for foreign actors to just feed off of, unfortunately. And I've um, told people as well that like countries can like survive like economic collapses. Like, for example, you saw like China and even like Russia go through communist experiments and whatnot that killed untold millions of people. But they're now like have like pursued more rational policies and they're emerging powers. They have not missed a beat whatsoever there challenging the U.S. on the world stage at the moment. So you can survive that, but you can't survive a demographic collapse. Like what's at stake, in my opinion, is just the fact that we're going to be talking about the long lost tribes of the Americans soon if this immigration question is not addressed properly. Because like CCP historians, like 150 years later, will be talking about this, how like the U.S. culture, like a lot of other cultures, like say like the Babylonians or whatever, just disappeared off the face of the earth because of the fact that it's treasonous ruling class basically demographically displaced its core population through one of the most radical mass migration experiments in human history. That is the Hart-Seller Act and the subsequent immigration legislation passed after. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And, you know, on your point on the whole thing about the cartels like carving out subsections of the country and and gaining a foothold which they already have to some extent uh you know a lot of the flooding of the border right just ascending the end endless amounts of people in part is you know it's funded by these different ngo groups for sure but also it's funded i would say in part by a lot of these cartels because if you can flood the border if you can take up the time of nearly 100% of the border agents, then, you know, you have a lot of parts of the border that are just wide open for you to be able to transport your goods across. You know, it's the old bait and switch, as they say. Yeah, we could go hours just talking about like the immigration question, like ultimately, like Republicans have to get serious about it, or we will see like basically the disappearance of historic America within our lifetime. But I think that I'm actually pretty confident that more and more people, especially millennials and Zoomers, like the younger millennials and Zoomers are starting to wake up to this. So yeah, I think this is a good place to wrap things up, man. So before we leave, Vincent, uh, plug your content. 
Yeah, so I do a stream every day, every weekday, Monday through Friday, 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern time on cozy.tv slash Vince. You'll be able to find me there. You can also find other streamers like Nick and many others that are adjacent to Nick Fuentes. It's his platform that he built. That's where I do my show every day. You can also find me in videos on demand on BitChute, Rumble, Odyssey, and Gab TV. You can find me on Telegram at t.me slash James, and also on Gab at Real Red Elephants. You can find all these links on dailyveracity.com, which is our website, dailyveracity.com slash links. That's where you can find all the links. Awesome, man. I thoroughly enjoy your content and I highly recommend my listeners to subscribe to Vincent's content and support his work in whatever way they can because we need more content creators like Vincent out here speaking the truth. For sure, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem, man. So, all right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. El Nino has spoken.